Amen. Please remain standing as we hear God's Word. We'll be studying Hebrews 13, 8 this morning, and to give us context, I'll read verses 1 through 8. Before we hear God's Word, let's pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, as another year closes today, we are reminded that you are the one who changes not, and because of that, we are not consumed. And so, Lord, we ask you, as you open your Word to us this morning, that we would look to the rock, the rock who casts his shade over us as in a dry and weary land, even Jesus himself. Make him beautiful and believable, we pray in his name. Amen. Hebrews 13, beginning at verse 1, this is God's holy, inspired, and therefore inerrant word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Some of y'all may have seen the 2016 film Sully, starring Tom Hanks, about Captain Chesley Sullenberger who landed the A320 Airbus uh, airplane carrying about 200 people on the Hudson River a few years ago. There was a bird strike, the engines went out, and he had to land shortly after taking off there in New York, right in the middle of the Hudson River. After uh, that incident, he was interviewed by Katie Couric, and she was astonished as they played the tape of the air traffic control tower at how calm Captain Sullenberger was as his engines were failing and his plane was about to crash into one of the most densely populated city centers in the world. And she asked him, how could you remain so calm? And they played the tape and he patiently worked through, should we try New Jersey? Should we do this? Should we do that? And his voice never raised, nothing like that. And then he said, okay, I have to land it in the river, very calmly. And he said this to her, I knew I had to solve the problem. The physiological reaction I had to this was strong, and I had to force myself to use my training and force calm on the situation. And Couric said, was that hard to do? And he said, no, I just had to concentrate. And friends, as I was thinking about that this week, it feels like a lot of times, especially as the year closes and we're thinking about this past year, that our lives can feel like an airplane that's out of control. And when your life feels, with all the changes going on, like there's nothing steady, we need to know that there's a calm captain at the helm. 
And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews tells us this morning. In fact, he uses those very words back in chapter 12. Jesus is the pioneer or captain of our faith. So let me set the context for you quickly. If you look at verse 22 of this chapter, uh, he says, bear with this brief word of exhortation. That's the uh, Greek word there is exactly the same as Acts 13, 15, where uh, Luke describes Paul's preaching. He calls it a word of exhortation. So this is a long sermon, a written sermon, but he calls it a brief word. So no more complaining about long sermons because it's 13 chapters. And he, he says to them, as he goes through this whole book, Here's his point. We don't know who the author uh, was. We don't know who the audience was. Best we can tell, they were a church probably in, around the Neronian persecutions of the mid-60s in the, in the first century. And, and this, this group was probably Hebrew Christians. There's no mention of circumcision throughout the letter, and that was a very huge topic for Gentile Christians. So this was largely a congregation of those who had been Jewish. And the author of Hebrews begins by saying Jesus is superior to all the angels. And then he says he's superior to the Aaronic priesthood. He's superior to the covenant made with Moses. He's superior in every way. And then as he finishes the book here where we come in chapter 13, he, he begins with these, did you notice this almost staccato repetition of imperatives? Do this, remember, do that consider. Do, 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 only because he's already told us what Jesus has done for us. He's not being moralistic. He's not trying to say you do good works in order to be saved. He's saying, now that I've explained the gospel to you, now that I've told you that Jesus is better and you don't need to forsake your faith and go back to Judaism, now here's what it means to live like a Christian. And here's the main point of verse 8 in chapter 13. The stability we crave in a world that changes constantly is found only in the Savior who satisfies our deepest longings. So the stability we crave, that'll be our first point, is found only in the Savior who satisfies our deepest longings. That'll be our second point. So first of all, then, the stability we crave. That's why I read verses 1 through 7. Commentators have discerned at least three areas here that the author of Hebrews wants us to pay attention to in these people's lives and in our own lives. The original recipients, as I mentioned, were struggling. We read that they had not resisted to the point of shedding blood, but that they had lost their homes. We read that some of them were in prison. Everything was changing around them. Now, we might not face those extreme circumstances of going to jail for our faith or having uh, people killed in our congregation for their faith, but we're dealing with the same basic reality that they were, change. And this is not a, a new problem for humans, is it? Go back 5,000 years. I remember being a philosophy student, one of the first philosophers you read in the so-called pre-Socratics, the Greek philosophers who wrote before Socrates. There was a guy named Heraclitus, and he, he was looking at the world around him, and he said the most basic feature of reality is change. Everything changes all the time, so all this change. And then a philosopher named Parmenides came along, Parmenides came along and said, no, actually, everything is static, everything's stable. And so it was back and forth in the history of philosophy. And so it is in our own lives. They're all wrestling with the same things. We look around us. We look at our lives. We see change all the time. But these were Hebrew Christians. 
They knew passages like Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. They knew passages like Exodus 33, look to the rock, the Lord, who is your salvation. They knew the stability that God brought to their lives. They had heard those promises their entire lives. So there was a massive gulf in their lives between what the Word of God told them and what their circumstances showed them. And that same gulf exists in our own lives, doesn't it? What the Word tells us and what we actually see in our lives, how we actually experience life, life together. And so he says there's these three areas that he wants us to focus on. He begins with relationships. He says, remember those who are in prison. Show hospitality to strangers. They were struggling because people who used to be at their tables with them, laughing with them, enjoying a meal, were now in prison. And they were scared because of these persecutions to let strangers into their home, which was a major feature of ancient Near Eastern life. And the author says, don't be afraid. Don't live your life out of fear. Open your homes. Open your hearts. He looks at that relationship. And then he looks at the marital relationships. He says there's struggles there. Let the marriage bed be undefiled and held in honor among all, for God will judge the sexually immoral. So they were struggling with their marriages. They were struggling to open their homes. Does that sound familiar? It sounds a lot like modern society, doesn't it? And he goes from those kind of relationships to money. Keep your life free from the love of money. Now, why would he say that? Because when things are changing, what seems absolutely trustworthy, absolutely stable, absolutely dependable, more than money? How many times have you looked at the problems in your life and thought to yourself, if I just had a little bit more money, my life would be so much easier? That's how we tend to think. And what does the author tell us? He quotes from the Old Testament. He says, Look at what you've already learned that you've heard from your parents and grandparents. He cites Proverbs. And he says, God will take care of you. He will always take care of you. And he's warning them and he's warning us that when things change, putting our deposit of faith, as it were, in our bank accounts is probably the least safe place to put our trust. And then he turns from money to church leaders. Remember your leaders who spoke, past tense. Their church leadership had changed. This was a young church. Many of them were scared about what was next after leadership had been changed in the church. And he says, look past that and remember the ones who spoke the Word of God to you. So in these three basic areas, relationships, money, and church, he says everything's going to be changing. You're going to be tempted to put your hope in the stability that you think money provides or that church leadership provides, and he says, no, that's not where you need to put your hope. And he does what he's been doing throughout this letter, and in verse 8, he points us to where we should always put our hope. That's why this verse doesn't just come out of the blue. That's why he sets it up this way. Sometimes we just read this as kind of an abstract statement about who Jesus is and was. But it's not that at all. It's a transition point in this part of the epistle. He's saying, look at all the change, and then remember the one I've been teaching you about. So the, the stability they were craving, and we are craving, is found in this Savior who satisfies. That's our second point. Let's see how he unpacks it. He says, remember Jesus Christ. 
Remember Jesus the Messiah. Now, he began this letter by telling us who Jesus was. He's the divine Son of God who's superior to the angels. He opens in chapter 1 and says, To which of the angels did He say, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. He continues to say, There's no created being that's higher than this Jesus. He continues in chapter 2 and says, This divine Son is now risen from the dead. And He ever lives at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us. He Himself is the One who leads us in worship, Hebrews 2.11. He's made a once-for-all atonement for sins. He's the divine second person of the Trinity. There's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Spirit. This Jesus, He says, is the One who is the guarantor of a new and better covenant, as He tells us in chapter 8. And He takes one of the most beloved Psalms in chapter 1 and verse 10 and applies it to Jesus. Psalm 102, 25 to 27. He says, do you want to know who Jesus is? He says, remember Psalm 102 when it talks about God making the heavens and the earth. And and the author says, remember what that Psalm says? The heavens and the earth will wear out and they will be rolled up like a scroll. But you, O Lord, remain steadfast forever. And he's talking about Jesus with that even though the psalm was written about Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's saying this is who Jesus is. He wants us to be caught up in something of the wonder of who Jesus is. That this eternal second person of the Trinity became man and overcame those who were captive by the devil to the fear of death by defeating death in His glorious resurrection from the grave. He says, remember this Jesus. This one who was before all things. Friends, consider the mystery of that with me just quickly. The changeless one to Jesus is. He's always been there. Creation's going to wear out. The beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains you can gaze upon on a clear day here. Those will wear out and be rolled up like a scroll. But this Jesus, the changeless one, became a little child as we've been celebrating during Christmas season. And there's great mystery in that, isn't there? The one who went through the stages of life, who was a little boy, and then a teenager, and then a young man, and then a grown man, and then who hung on a cross, and then who was raised from the dead. This one went through all the changes that we go through. That's why in chapter 4 he says, we don't have an unsympathetic high priest but one who was tempted in every way as we are and yet was without sin. The changeless one knows what it's like to live as a human. He knows what it's like to be tempted during the changes and changing circumstances of our lives. And therefore, he puts it like this. He says, remember Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Why does he put it like that? Because he says, look at the span of your life and think about how Jesus' immutability, that's a theological term, it simply means changelessness. To be mutable is to change, to be immutable is to be changeless. It's one of God's, uh, what theologians call, incommunicable attributes. What we mean by that is simply this. We can share in a creaturely way in some of God's attributes. God is wise. We can be wise. He's gracious. We can be gracious. He's loving. We can be loving. 
But there's some attributes God has that we will never share in. God is eternal. We are not. We're created. God is immutable. He never changes. We change all the time. We grow old. We die. And so as he says to them, remember all of this, as he's giving them these instructions on how to live, he says, look at the span of your life. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. Because he's the creator who will keep being there even after creation wears out. And because he was the creator who was there before it was all made, your past is secure, as it were. Your past doesn't define you. He was in charge of every single detail of your life to bring you where you are today. He ordained your days. God is that sovereign. What did David say? Every one of my days were written in your book when there was yet one of them. Every single detail of your life governed by Jesus. You were not here on accident. You're not brought here to this church by accident this morning. It's all Jesus is doing. He governs sovereignly. That's why He's never afraid. That's why He can be the changeless God to us. Because nothing surprises Him. He is not caught off guard by the changes that happen in our lives or in our world. Why? Because He's the sovereign Lord over all of them. He's the same yesterday. Before you even got here, He was there. He's the same today. The author of Hebrews says, look at your present circumstances. He says, Jesus offers salvation. He offers to bless us when we don't deserve it right now in the here and now. No matter what's going on in our lives. No matter what you're facing. He says He's the same right now. This changeless one has not changed simply because life is hard for you right now. He's not changed or caught off guard by your circumstances, by what you're experiencing, by what you're worried about. He says, no, this same Jesus still has fresh grace, fresh blessings. His mercies are new every morning for where we are right now. And He's the same forever, He says, because we're worried about the future, aren't we? There's a general tone of anxiety in our culture about the future. And think about for these Hebrew Christians, they didn't know if an authority was going to come knocking on their door and say, is there a Bible study here? Come with me. You're going to be one of Nero's human torches. Think about the anxiety that must have caused those people. They were tempted to fear about the future. We're all tempted to worry about that. Whether it's future corporately or future individually. You look at the beginning of a new year, you say to yourself, well, I've got these resolutions I want to make, these things I want to accomplish, but I don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring, and so there's a knot in my stomach. I'm worried about what's going to happen at work. I'm worried about what's going to happen uh, with my children. I'm worried if I'm going to get married. I'm worried if I'm going to stay married. These people face the same thing. And the author of Hebrews reminds them, he says he's the same forever. Because He's the eternal, immutable God who sits on the throne. This isn't wishful thinking. The New Testament doesn't use the word hope in a light way of saying, like we do, I hope so. I hope I'll be home by 5.30, which generally means I probably won't be. That's not how the, the New Testament uses the word. Hope is sure. Hope is certain. Because Jesus is alive. Because His resurrection happened. 
That is the certain hope on which we build our entire life. And he says to us, he reasons from the lesser to the greater. He's building a case. He's making an argument. He says, if you look at your life, past, present, and future, and you know Jesus is alive, and you know he's a sympathetic high priest, and you know he's the unchanging God, then you can trust your future to him and live with freedom and abandon that everybody craves. And so few ever find in this life. So he says that stability we all crave can be found only in this divine Savior who satisfies our deepest longings. So then the question becomes as we finish here, how does Jesus stabilize our lives? Let's take those three categories he gave us and look at them each briefly to think about how Jesus stabilizes our lives. What about our relationships? Here's one thing to resolve in the new year for all of us. The the word for hospitality used here is only used about three times in the New Testament. And I'm going to quote it in Greek. I don't like doing that. But you can hear where our English words come from. The, the, The Greek word is xenophilia, love of stranger. So in 2024, let's let's all resolve here as a church. We're going to open our homes more. Okay? But you will only open your home and your heart and invite people in if you are stable and secure in the one relationship that matters the most, your relationship with God. Because if fear and insecurity drive you, if you don't know whether or not you're a Christian, or if you wonder, does God really love me, then that most important relationship will drive every other relationship in your life. And if you're insecure about God's love for you, you are not going to be able to open your heart or your home literally or figuratively to anybody. You'll be so caught up in what other people think of you. You'll be so caught up in saying, well, my house is messy. Okay, let's just get this out of the way. Nobody's house is clean all the time. I've been in a lot of y'all's homes. Y'all been in my house. It's not clean all the time. Guess what? God never says having a clean house means you're doing right hospitality correctly. No, he says bring people into the mess. Let them see. Okay? What about relationships in marriage this year? You know, here's what we hear all the time. Well, I just fell out of love with that person. Okay? Well, people change, don't they? One of the things I say in premarital counseling to couples is, There's something wrong with a love that stays the same from when you're engaged to when you're 20 years in marriage. Your feelings are going to change. That love should grow and go deeper. So when somebody says, well, I just fell out of love with that person, my my immediate response wants to be, so? Of course you did. We all fall out of love with each other. That's part of marriage. Your love changes. You're not going to love that person the same way you did when you first met them. As one of my friends who's a counselor uh, asked once, and I, I use it now in every premarital counseling session I do, first question I ask, what are you going to do the first time you feel about somebody else the way you feel about your future spouse right now? That's a question, isn't it? If you've been married a little bit, you know what that question is designed to ask. It's designed to reveal the fact that our feelings will change for each other. But you can't fall out of covenant with God. And marriage is a covenant, my friends. And of course you're going to change. 
It's like what Ruth Bell Graham said when she was asked about being married to Billy Graham for so long. She said, have you ever considered divorce? She said, divorce? Never. Murder? A few times. <laughs> People change in marriage. And the temptation of the devil here is the same one these Hebrews face. Go find somebody who makes you happier. And as Dick likes to say, if you look, he's a farm boy, you, you look at the grass and it's greener on the other side, it means there's more manure on the other side of the fence. Okay? So when we're faced with the changes of marriage, here's what the author says, remember your faithful covenant God. Remember Jesus who loves you even when you're unlovely, when I'm unlovely. That's why Paul picks marriage as a metaphor for our relationship with Jesus. We're not always going to feel like we love Jesus. We're not always going to feel like He loves us. And guess what? He keeps loving. And he says that's the basis for your marital love to one another. And that's the basis for your fidelity to one another. Jesus doesn't cheat on His bride. He doesn't have other lovers. That's why the author of Hebrews says, remember Jesus in your marriages. And then he says, think about your money. Think about how that can easily become an idol. Very few people will admit that they struggle with covetousness. But just take a look and think about, maybe you asked this question around the Christmas tree this week. You got done opening the gifts. Took five minutes if you've got young kids. They tear through them. And you get done. And you ask your kids, did you get everything you wanted? And you're, you're, you're waiting for that to see if they're satisfied, right? And at, let's ask ourselves that question about our lives. Did we get everything we wanted? The answer is probably no. And then that can begin to, to sow this root of bitterness the author of Hebrews talks about. Well, why did you give that person more than me, God? I, I feel like I should have more. I feel like if you were kind to me like you are to that person, then, then my life would be okay. That's covetousness. It's as serious a sin as greed is. Where God has blessed us with a lot and we say, I did this on my own. It's my money. I'm going to do with it as I see fit. And the author of Hebrews says, no, no, no. When you start knowing Jesus, you can remember and begin to live out one of my favorite promises our Lord gave us. Matthew 6 34, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Remember what he told us? Look at the flowers. Look at the birds. They don't ever worry. Your heavenly Father takes care of them. You're so much more valuable than grass or birds. And so he says, be content. And the only way you're ever going to be content, the only way I'm ever going to be content, is if our satisfaction is in Christ before it's in the bottom line when you open our bank apps. And then he says, think about church. Now, this church has been through a lot of changes this past year. And I remember when I, when I first got here, the first sermons I preached, I made you a promise, and I think I've kept it pretty well. I will let you down. Church leaders will let you down. As I was thinking about that this week, I realized that in 20 years of ministry, Every single church, well, almost, yeah, over 20 now. From the very first church I served as a youth pastor till here, there's never been a church that our family has been at where there, we have not come in the middle of a leadership transition 
Or while we were there, a leadership transition happened. And doing some research, right now the average evangelical pastorate that's in a Bible-believing church is how long? Three to four years. That is how long a pastor lasts at a church on average right now. Okay? There's changes that happen in church leadership. And why are we so tempted to put our trust in leaders? Now, he's going to tell us, obey your leaders as those who must give an account for your souls. So it's a good thing, he says, to look at leaders. He says, imitate their faith. Notice he doesn't say imitate them. He says, imitate their faith. Be like them in their trust for Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. But when things change in our lives, we're tempted to think, well, at least church is stable. No, it's not, is it? Okay, so I'm going to fail you. Continue to. Dick will fail you. Randy will fail you. Whatever new pastors come in, they'll fail you. Your elders will fail you at times. Your deacons will fail you at times. And here's what happens in our culture when church fails us. We go, we either check out or we say, well, I'll just find a church that doesn't fail me. Good luck. <laughs> Every church you go to will have problems. They will have leaders that fail you. This goes back thousands of years, my friends. And it's going to keep happening. And here's what we need to do as Christians. We look beyond the shepherds who are under shepherds. That's all we are. It's all officers of the church are. We look beyond them and we consider the great shepherd who will never let us down. Think about it like this. Sixty years ago, there were people sitting in these pews, most of which are not here today. Sixty years from now, probably about 95% of us won't be here. But this church has been around for 183 years by God's grace. That's because it's not our church. It's His. He will take care of it. He will see that it goes on. He will make sure that this church is well taken care of. All your leaders are are stewards for a short little while, whether that's three years or 20 years. It's just a little while, and then we're gone. And we have to look to Christ to sustain this church more than any leader that ever comes through here. So Jesus, so the author says to us, if you want real relationships, you're going to have to risk. You're going to have to let people in. If you want to be free from the love of money, you're going to have to learn to be grateful every day. And we're going to have to learn to be grateful even for the hard times because it's only the hard times that make us humble and it's only humble people who walk closely with God. Proud people don't feel like they need Jesus. We've got to be grateful in everything. That's what he's calling us to here. And then he says you've got to be patient with the church. You know, again, the, the, the longer I walk with Jesus, I am so thankful for how patient he is with me and my failures. Because the longer I walk with him, the, the, the more and in, in, in sharper relief become my failures as a father, as a husband, as a pastor. They become more crisp and distinct, and I see them more clearly. And you know what Jesus is showing me? As as one of my friends likes to put it, the closer you get to the light, the longer your shadow becomes. And the trick is not to focus on the shadow, but on the light. Be patient with each other. Be patient with your leaders. We're going to blow it, guys. 
And the best thing you can do for the leadership of this church is to pray for us. We need wisdom. We need understanding. We need patience. And we need most of all prayer for all of those things. So as the new year begins, here's where the author leaves us. Don't be afraid of your past. Don't be worried about your present. Don't be anxious for your future because the best is yet to come. No Christian's story has a sad ending because the resurrection is true. All the sad <coughs> stories come untrue. Don't be afraid of tomorrow. Don't be anxious about a new year. No Christian has the right ever to be a pessimist. Every Christian should be an optimist because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's pray. Father, we would never design a salvation or a Savior like Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you for him. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for sustaining your church. Help our marriages, help our relationships. Help us be a hospitable, outward-facing people. And Father, help us not be greedy. Help us to give generously. And let us not love our money more than we love you. And in this new year, Lord, may we flee to the rock that is higher than we, even Jesus our Lord, in whom there is neither variableness nor change. We pray in his name. Amen.